The whole armor of God includes only one offensive weapon. But what a weapon it is. A sword capable of defeating the enemy. Are you keeping it sharp? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah takes a closer look at the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and why it's such a formidable force in spiritual warfare. To introduce the conclusion of his message, The Sword of the Spirit, here's David. Ephesians chapter 6, one of the great chapters in the Bible because it contains the armor of the believer. Here we are told to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand against Satan. And while the armor itself is defensive, there is one offensive weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When we know the Word of God, we have an armory of swords that we can use against the one who comes after our soul. I hope you're catching up with that as we study this together. Back to Ephesians 6 in just a moment. But first, if you'd like to have the study guide that covers all the messages we're doing on the Bible, we'd love to send it to you. It's called The Word, the signature series on the Bible. You can get this from davidjeremiah.org. That's uh, where you can go and find out all about these resources. You can order the study guide, the CD package that goes with it, and there you will see a lot of other things, including our magazine, uh, things that you might want to have coming your way. The best place to check it out is davidjeremiah.org. And then don't forget, during this month, if you send a gift of any size to help us in our final month of fiscal year, and simply ask for this incredible book called Living the 66 Books of the Bible, 287 pages in a hardcover gift format with practical application for each book of the Bible. You'll be encouraged and challenged as you study the entirety of God's Word and realize there's no book in the Bible that does not have a word of instruction for your life. Please let us send this to you as our way of saying thank you for your fiscal year-end gift. We're so grateful for your participation. And now here is part two of The Sword of the Spirit. The second temptation of Jesus took place 450 feet above the Kidron Valley on the temple roof. Jesus is on the pinnacle of the temple with Satan. And Satan says to him, if you really are the son of God, why don't you prove it? Why don't you just cast yourself off this temple and see what happens? See that the Lord God will save you. Now watch what Satan is doing. I told you he uses what he learns in the first temptation against you in the second one. Here's how Satan reasoned. He said, Jesus, if you won't work a miracle for yourself because you don't want to live independently of the Father, why don't you let God do a miracle for you? Why don't you jump off and let God catch you and protect you on the way down? Satan used the second temptation to eliminate the problem encountered in the first temptation. If Christ cannot perform a miracle independent of his Father, then let the Father do a miracle for him. Sounds logical, but it is totally illogical. In the first temptation, Satan was trying to get Christ to distrust his Father and act independently. In the second temptation, he was trying to get him to trust God more than he should. He was trying to get him to be presumptuous and jump from the temple so that his Father would catch him. The devil wanted Christ to set himself up as a wonder worker, to put on a show. But the Lord had the perfect sword already, and once again he reached into his armory that he was carrying with him, and he pulled out sword number two, and he said, It is written, 
you shall not tempt the Lord your God. There was a man in the time of Jesus by the name of Simon Magus who promised to prove that he was the Messiah and dive off the pinnacle of the temple. And he did it. And there was really nothing wrong with the dive, but the landing messed him all up. (laughs) He was presumptuous. He was tempting God. Jesus used the sword on Satan. He says, Satan, don't you tempt God. Don't set traps for God. Don't force God into situations he never intended to occupy. Today we have to apply that truth. We must not ask God to be our bellhop or our servant. We must not be presumptive in our faith. Jesus knew exactly the right word to use to defeat Satan's attack. He said, don't tempt God, and he quoted from the scripture. For all of us who have a tendency to be presumptuous, let us remember one simple truth. It is absolutely right to believe in miracles. It is absolutely wrong to schedule them. (laughs) Now, I want to leave one other thought with you before we go on to round three. Did you notice that when Satan came back for round two, since Jesus used the scripture against him in round one, Satan's going to use the scripture against Jesus in round two. We hear Jesus being told by Satan, it is written. And then Satan quotes from Psalm 91 and 11 and 12. And notice what he says. He said, it is written, God, listen to me, Jesus, it is written. You want to talk about what's written? Let's talk about what's written. Here's something that's written. It is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He quoted from Psalm 91 and 11 and 12, but he didn't quote it correctly. Satan knows the scripture. Did you know that? He knows the scripture better than most of us. He's very, very good with the Bible, but he uses it deceitfully. Let me show you what he did. Do you know what Psalm 91, 11, and 12 actually says? It says, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Satan left the all your ways out because here's what I've learned about the enemy. Here's what I've learned about Satan. It's something very interesting, very practical. Satan always understates the goodness of God and he always overstates the judgment of God. Did you know that? He always comes and says, you know, you say you have a good God. He is good, but he's not as good as you think he is. God was making this promise in Psalm 91 that angels will protect us anywhere, under any situation, on the temple, pinnacle, on the floor, wherever. He will keep you in all your ways. Satan minimized the goodness of God. And he always does that. You remember in the garden, the serpent said, hath God really said? He's not going to surely die. How Satan loves to do that. Doesn't he do that with us? And I could use some practical illustrations that you would truly identify with. Maybe your temptation is thus and thus. Satan will always, you know, God would want you to do this. He'll minimize the goodness of God and he'll maximize the judgment of God. Temptation number one is the lust of the flesh. Temptation number two is the lust of the eyes. And here's the third one, the pride of life. Matthew 4, 8. Again, third time, the devil takes Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and he says to him, Jesus, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Well, you say, does Satan have the right to make such an offer? Yes, he's the prince of this world, isn't he? He's on a leash during this period of time, but he's the prince of the power of the air. Satan is loose on this earth. If he wasn't, we wouldn't have such a hard time. 
He's kind of the prince of this world right now. And he's offering Jesus the opportunity to take this kingdom and to take it now. Now, he's appealing to the personal ambition of Jesus, the pride of life. He's asking Jesus and saying, Jesus, the end justifies the means. Jesus, you're already going to have a kingdom. We know that. But why don't you take a shortcut to the kingdom? Why don't you just come into the world and set up your kingdom now? Why don't you substitute the physical, temporal kingdom in place of the kingdom for which you came? Why don't you forget about the cross? Why don't you forget about the resurrection? Why don't you forget about salvation and redemption and take your kingdom now by force? Satan, from the very beginning, was trying to do everything he could to keep Jesus from going to the cross because when Jesus went to the cross, Satan was done. The sentence hasn't been totally carried out, but it has been passed, and Satan's finished. And it was the cross that did it, and Satan did everything in his whole career to keep Jesus from being born, to keep him from going to the cross. Here was another attempt on the enemy's part. If you can just keep Jesus from going to the cross, Satan wins. And once again, Jesus reached into a sheath of swords, and he said, Satan, it is written. (laughs) You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Match over, Jesus wins three to zero. And notice what it says. And the devil left him. Oh, hallelujah. The devil left him. Oh, those are the happiest words you ever hear. And the devil left him. And the Bible says when the devil left him, the angels came and ministered to him. Do you remember James in his book in the New Testament? He says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Jesus resisted the devil with the word of God. And the Bible says the devil left him. Do you see how you use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, just like Jesus did? When Satan comes with a temptation, you need to have a word, one of the sayings. These were sayings from the Bible. Jesus chose a saying, and he used it against the enemy. We'll have more to say about that in just a moment. Now, we've talked about how this can be used in the scriptural way. Let me talk about how it works in the practical way. Ray Stedman was a teacher of mine when I was in seminary. He used to pastor a great church up in Palo Alto, California. He's now with the Lord. But he's written so much on the Scripture, and it's always so practical. And right here he has a helpful word concerning the way the sword of the Spirit works in our lives. Listen carefully and see if you haven't experienced this somewhere along the way. He writes that sometimes when you are reading a passage of Scripture, the words seem suddenly to come alive. They take on flesh and bones, and they leap off the page at you. They grow eyes that follow you around everywhere you go. Or they develop a voice that echoes in your ear until you can't get away from it. Perhaps you've had that experience in some moment of temptation or doubt when you were assailed by what Paul calls the flaming darts of the evil one, and immediately a passage of Scripture which supplies the answer comes flashing to your mind. Or maybe you've been asked a question that caught you off guard for a moment and you were about to say, I don't know, and before the words could come out of your mouth, you suddenly had a moment of illumination and a word of scripture came to mind which gave you the answer. Perhaps this experience has happened while you're sitting in a meeting where some message has come home to your heart with strange and powerful effect. You were greatly moved and in that moment you made a deep and permanent decision. 
All of this is the rhema of God, the sayings of God that strike home like arrows to the heart. This is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And all of us have had that experience. Why is it that we have that experience? It's the power of God's Word. So we've looked at the explanation of the sword and the emphasis of it and the example of it. Now, I want to just talk for a couple more minutes about the effect of it. What is the effect of the sword of the Spirit? Three things. First of all, this explains the dynamic of preaching. The Bible says that people are saved by the foolishness of preaching. It really, when you stop and think about it, doesn't it seem kind of strange that you can come to a place or maybe go to a stadium where Billy Graham is going to speak and this man can stand up and you may not even be able to see him and he's going to speak from the Word of God and he's going to say some things in that stadium and you're going to respond to them and when you respond, it changes your life. I want to tell you something. If I were a Christian out of fellowship with God or I were not a Christian and I was going to a Bible preaching church, I might sit as far back as I could and I've often thought about putting a sign that says hazardous because you see what I do when I preach is I stand up here and I fling swords. That's all I do. I throw swords out from the Bible. I preach the Word of God and the sayings of God just get thrown everywhere and they're bound to hit you sometime. And usually when you're listening carefully, if you're taking notes and trying to ask God to help you understand it, the sword will come at a point in your life where you really need it or where you really need it and don't want it. (laughs) And the sword will do its work in your life. Haddon Robinson once wrote that God speaks through the Bible, through the preaching of the Scripture. He encounters men and women to bring them to salvation and to richness and ripeness in Christian character. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, explains the dynamic of preaching, how God's Word can change a person in a moment. Number two, this truth teaches us the important discipline of reading the Bible through systematically. First of all, that explains the dynamic of preaching and that it encouraged the discipline of reading the Bible. And I can explain this to you very quickly. Jesus used three swords against Satan that day in the wilderness. Do you know where they came from? Well, you probably think, well, they probably are from the Psalms or some prominent portion of the Word of God. No, no, no. All three of his swords came from the book of Deuteronomy. You've got to be kidding me. From Deuteronomy? Jesus used all of his swords against Satan from the book of Deuteronomy? Oh, yes, there are swords in Deuteronomy. I even think there's a few in Leviticus. But if you don't know the swords, if you don't even know what they're there, you will never. So here's the deal. When you're reading through the Word of God, He'll give you some truths as you read through the Scripture. You may not need them that day, but you'll need to know where they were so you can go back and get them. This book is the armory. This is the Logos. And in the Logos are hundreds of thousands of rhema, sayings of God. And when you find those sayings and you put them together with the temptation in your life, You can do what Jesus did. You can say, it is written, (laughs) and nail him with a sword. Thirdly, this truth teaches us the dynamic of preaching and the discipline of reading the Bible systematically. And thirdly, it teaches us the diligence of memorizing passages of the Word of God. I know that most of you don't like the word memorize. I think about the 10th grade or so, memorize goes out of our vocabulary. I don't know why that is. 
Somebody tells us it's not a good educational method. I don't necessarily agree with that. Here's what I know. When Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan came to tempt him, Jesus didn't say, can you wait just a minute while I go get my concordance? You know, you don't get to do that, do you? I found that when the temptation comes to me, it's rarely when I'm sitting in my office with my Bible open and I'm studying for a sermon. It never happens that way. Your temptations come normally in a situation where you would be ill-prepared if you didn't have some of the Word of God stored in your mind. And I'm not going to get all over you about not memorizing the Word of God because I know it's hard and it seems to get harder as you get older. But sometimes what happens is we say, well, I can't memorize any verses, so I'm not going to do it. Well, can you memorize one? (laughs) Could you memorize just one verse? Could you just say, Lord God, show me a verse that will help me with the greatest issue I have in my life right now. If you don't know where those verses are, take the issue, look it up in a concordance, and look through all the verses, and when you do, the Lord will show you one that you can use. And just say, okay, I'm going to memorize one verse, and I'm going to let that be my sword, and I promise you if you do that, God will give you an opportunity to use it, (laughs) and he will show you the strength of his word in your life, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Eugene Peterson He says, when I was 35, I bought running shoes and I began enjoying the smooth rhythms of long distance running. Soon, he said, I was competing in 10K races every month or so, and then I ran a marathon once a year. By then, I was subscribing to and reading three different running magazines. Then I pulled a muscle and I couldn't run for a couple of months. And guess what? Those magazines were still all over the house, but I never opened one one time. The moment I resumed running, I started reading again. That's when I realized that my reading was an extension of something I was part of. I was reading for companionship and affirmation of the experience of running. I did learn a few things along the way, but mostly it was just to deepen my world of running. If I wasn't running, there was nothing to deepen. And he said the parallel with reading scripture is striking. If I'm not living in active response to the living God, reading from his word won't hold my interest for very long. The most important question isn't what does this mean, but how can I obey? Simple obedience will open up our lives to a text more quickly than any number of Bible studies, dictionaries, concordances, or paraphrases. What is he saying? He's saying if you're running the race, you read the magazine. (laughs) If you're not running the race, the magazine's not real interesting to you. And the same thing is true for the Christian life. If you're running the race as a Christian, this magazine's going to be interesting to you because it's going to help you understand and it's going to affirm and explain and express what's going on in your daily walk. It's going to give you guidance and direction. If you quit running the race, you're going to put the magazine down. And that's where some of us are today. It's not that we don't like the Bible. It's not that we don't love the Word of God. We're just not running the race, and so it doesn't have a lot of interest to us. So if you want to get back interested in the Word of God, enter the race again. Start living for the Lord. Start serving the Lord. I'll tell you what. There's an old adage that says, if you want to learn the Bible, become a teacher. (laughs) Teach some kids the Bible. They'll ask you questions that will deepen your faith in one week. (laughs) But if you're not running the race, you're not going to read the magazine. H.P. Barker wrote about this experience. He said, one day I was looking out the window into the garden and I saw three things. First, he said, I saw a butterfly. The butterfly was beautiful and it would light on a flower and then it would flutter to another flower and then to another and only for a second or two it would sit and it would move on and it would touch as many lovely blossoms as it could but it derived absolutely no benefit from it at all. And then I watched a little longer, he said, and out my window I saw a botanist 
Now, a botanist is a student of flowers. The botanist had a big notebook under his arm and a great big magnifying glass. And the botanist would lean over a certain flower and he would look for a long time and then he would write notes in his notebook. And he was there for hours writing notes and then he stuck his notes under his arm and tucked his magnifying glass in his pocket and he walked away. And then I saw the third thing he said. As I looked out my window into the garden, I looked and I noticed a bee, just a little bee. But the bee would light on a flower and it would sink down deep into the flower and it would extract all the nectar and pollen that it could carry. It went in empty every time and it came out full. And I need to tell you something, folks. We are either like a butterfly, a botanist, or a bee. (laughs) And most of us have been one of those at some time in our life or another. Some Christians like the butterfly. They just flit from one Bible study to another, from one sermon to the next sermon, from one commentary to the next, gaining little more than a nice feeling and some good ideas. (laughs) Others are like the botanist. Oh, they study the scripture carefully. They take copious notes. They gain so much information, but little truth. (laughs) And then there are others like the bee who go to the Bible to be taught by God and to grow in their knowledge of him. And like the bee, they never go away empty. I've been like the butterfly some, perhaps more like the botanist than I should have been. But I know that in my heart I want to be like that bee. Go down deep into the flower and suck everything there is out of there. Go in empty but come out full. Every time you open your Bible, you should say, Lord God, help me to be like the bumblebee today. Help me to go in here and get everything there is for me today. I don't want to just read it for an assignment. Help me to hear your voice as I read it. Lord God, there's going to be some swords in this chapter that I'm going to need. Help me to see where they are. Lord, maybe even you can give me some grace, help me to memorize one of them. (laughs) But if you're going to fight the battle, and folks, I can't imagine how what we've been talking about could have been any more timely than it is, given what's going on in our world. We are under siege as a church. We are no longer the popular Christian group that we once were. We are not even considered to be politically correct anymore. (laughs) If you're going to be a Christian, you can't be a wimp. If you're going to be a Christian, you've got to be a soldier. And if you're going to be a soldier, you need more than just armor to keep you from getting hit. You need to learn how to use the weapon God has given you. And the only weapon there is, I mean, I wish I could tell you there's ten others, but there's just one. It's this book. That's why we concentrate on it here. That's why it's just every week the message from this pulpit. Because if you get this book and you begin to use it in a proper way and learn how to use the sayings of God... There is no way you will be victimized. You will be victorious. And you will be able to say with the authority of the Lord Jesus, it is written. It is written. Well, I hope you have a few swords in your armory. And if not, you can begin to collect them. Very easy to do. Find the scriptures that help you in any particular situation, catalog them, keep them, and be ready to use them when the time comes. Already, as I was concluding this message, I was thinking of some of the verses that God has given me to help me over the years, and I'm sure you have a few that come to your mind as well. Well, tomorrow, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about salvation. So many times when you talk to people about what it means to be a Christian, you discover there's a lot of confusion. How do you know what it means to be saved? How do you know what it means to have salvation? Well, the Bible is very clear about it. And in a passage of Scripture, 
In the second chapter of Ephesians, I am going to lay out clearly what the Bible says about salvation. If you are among many who listen to us who have yet to receive Christ as your Savior, and maybe you've been thinking about being a Christian, we'll be sure and listen tomorrow and Monday because we're going to talk about what that really means. I hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, if you haven't already ordered your copy of Living the 66 Books of the Bible, you do that in a very simple way that makes it possible for everyone to have the book if they want it. Send a gift of any size to Turning Point during the month of June and simply ask for this 287-page hardcover book that presents the practical application of every book in the Bible. I hope you will do that. Uh, Time is running out. You can't wait until it's too late. So please make your gift. Ask for your copy of the book. We'll have it on its way to you before you know it. And we'll see you tomorrow for the Friday edition of Turning Point right here on this good station. Today's message came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church and Senior Pastor Dr. David Jeremiah. We'd love to know how Turning Point is encouraging you, so please write us at Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's new book, living the 66 books of the Bible and learn to better understand and apply God's Word each day. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your smartphone or tablet or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries to access our programs and resources. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, The Word, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you're ready to go deeper in your Bible study, living the 66 books of the Bible by Dr. David Jeremiah will help. You'll learn how to identify each book's purpose, theme, challenge, verse, and prayer. And it's yours with a donation of any amount to Turning Point this month. And if you give $60 or more, you'll also receive the first volume of this series and a Genesis through Revelation DVD. To learn more, visit davidjeremiah.ca. Dear friend, I'm Dr. David Jeremiah, and I'd like to take a moment to speak with you as the world faces the coronavirus pandemic. There is no question we are living in a time of unprecedented uncertainty. It is unlike anything I have experienced in my whole life. And the temptation in times like these is to allow fear and worry to creep into our thoughts and to rob us of our joy. But in these uncertain times, we need to remember that God is still in control. And my prayer for you is that you are healthy, you're in a safe place and surrounded by those you love. Please keep the ministry of Turning Point in your prayers as well. We will continue to bring the healing power of God's Word to you each day on radio, television, and online. And I really hope this will be a source of encouragement to you during the current coronavirus. So be safe, be in the Word, and be in prayer. When Boeing launched its top-of-the-line plane, the 787 Dreamliner, the planes were immediately grounded because of small batteries that overheated and caught fire. 
Planes that cost more than $200 million each were grounded by batteries costing $8,000 per plane. Well, there's a spiritual lesson there for us all. Sometimes the smallest sin, indiscretion, or lack of care can bring our lives to a screeching halt and sometimes ground us for good. It's true. Sometimes the devil is in the spiritual details. We would be far wiser to have God there instead. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover why God cares about details on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.